0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Hey, fan people. It's your host, Aaron Broverman, reminding you that this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. And the thing I love about comics are the crossovers. You know, those intercompany crossovers. DC versus Marvel, Batman versus Spider-Man, Spawn versus Daredevil. I mean, really, the sky's the limit. But I miss them. They don't happen so much anymore. But on the retail side, Harry Tarantula has a crossover on its own. You can go there for your comics fix and your cryptocurrency because they now sell Bitcoin. So you can get Batman and Bitcoin. It's pretty great, especially when people like uh, city councillor Norm Kelly are talking about maybe paying your taxes in Toronto, your parking tickets, those sorts of things with Bitcoin. Now if you don't know what Bitcoin is, it's a decentralized currency, Leon can tell you all about it. As he says, the least interesting thing about Bitcoin is the price. So go over there, get your comics, get your cryptocurrency, get your Batman, get your Bitcoin, and tell Leon that Aaron sent you.
1: Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum.
0: Hi, guys. Welcome to the spotlight on Hoche Anderson. Uh, My name is Aaron Broverman. I host a podcast called Speech Bubble, where I talk to people who live in Toronto and work in the comic industry. But before we get started, just a few acknowledgements I have to make as moderator. The Toronto Comics Arts Festival would like to acknowledge that the land on which we gather is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. The Haudenosaunee and the Huron-Wundat and that Indigenous people have lived on and cared for this land for more than 15,000 years. This territory is covered by the Dish With One Spoon Wampum Belt Treaty and today, Toronto is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island. We acknowledge that settlers on the land directly benefit from the process of colonization. In recognition of our gathering on these lands for TCAF 2018, The festival has made a donation to Native Child and Family Services of Toronto, and we look forward to increasing our support and programs for Indigenous creators in the years to come. We also have some sponsors. TCAF 2018 is sponsored by Seneca College's Faculty of Communication, Art and Design. TCAF would also like to thank our presenting sponsors, The Beguiling, Little Island Comics, and Toronto Public Library. Thanks to our media sponsor, Now Magazine, we also recognize the support of the Canada Council for the Arts, the Ontario Arts Council, and the Toronto Arts Council. So welcome, everybody. Uh, You're not here for me. You're here for our guest, Hoche Anderson. Hoche got his start doing the I Want to Be Your Dog sort of erotic comic. He also is best known probably for his comic biography of Martin Luther King Jr. called King. Uh, He's done Scream Queen. And uh, his latest release is a release called Godhead, where a corporation gives people the opportunity to talk to God. So please welcome Hoche Anderson.
1: (laughs) My (laughs) friend's looking at me funny as she claps. (laughs) Also,
0: designed the poster uh, for TCAF this year. I did. So, that, that's a pretty great honor because there's been a lot of artists who've uh, done it in the past. I wanted to start kind of with uh, what were some of your influences growing up? Who influenced you, and what kind of uh, genre fiction or comics?
1: So my f- the first person that really influenced me when I was growing up was uh, Jack Kirby. I was crazy about Jack Kirby. I was crazy about those weird distortions that he put into his characters and that kind of over the top dynamism he put into his storytelling. I didn't really understand it, but it was very attractive to a young person. And right, so it was, I was a Marvel zombie is what I'm saying as a little kid. And uh, after that, it was Steve Ditko. It was like the big one. I got a bunch of uh, annuals. Not annuals. No uh, Digest comics of uh, reprints of uh, Spider-Man uh, that Lee and Ditko did in the beginning. That stuff just really, really impressed me. And it really kind of that put the seed of wanting to be a visual storyteller into me. That's awesome.
0: And you grew up here?
1: Yeah, I grew up. I was born in England. I lived in England until I was five years old. Then we moved to, then we moved to the Toronto area. I moved to Jane and Finch back when it was really gnarly. Yeah, and then I've been in Scarborough for most of my life. And then, well, in Toronto, really most of my life, but it's Scarborough and then Toronto.
0: Cool, cool, that's awesome. So what made you go from a comics <coughs> fan to somebody who wanted to do comics? And how did you break in?
1: Gosh, in some ways I feel like I'm still breaking in, to be honest with you. But I was one of those people who was always drawing and always writing as a young person. And I've often said that I sort of feel like um, the medium sort of chose me more than I chose it because when you're all you're doing is writing stories and you're drawing pictures, it sort of becomes a natural fit to just want to do comic books after a while. I, I've often defined myself more as a visual storyteller than anything else because I'm also involved in the cinema world as well as uh, the comic book world. Anything where I can combine words and pictures to tell a story is something that excites me.
0: Nice. Stylistically, I, I see some influences from like, you know, old Soviet sort of posters and those sorts of things. Can you talk a bit about, like, what influences your style as a professional?
1: Oh, I didn't cover the part about breaking in in your last question today. Uh, We'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll come back. We'll come back to that. Uh, Yeah, I'm very much, uh, in terms of my visual style, moved by things that are very graphic in nature and very bold in nature. That Soviet kind of... uh, you know, Russian Revolution era artwork that you mentioned is, is, is a huge, had a huge impact on me when I was starting out. I was also really uh, inspired by the Art Deco and Art Nouveau movements. Alphonse Muha and artists like that really kind of really, the decorative nature of his work really kind of impressed me. And um, the kind of bold stylization you get in Art Deco really kind of impressed me. So yeah, and then as I got deeper into the comic book world, it was people like Howard Chaikin that really kind of like, because he's a guy, he has a lot of the same influences that I have, kind of 1930s, 1920s illustration, and uh, a love of sort of bold graphics in his work. Guys like that really put the fire in me.
0: Yeah, I definitely recognize in in your early work, definitely you see some Howard Chaikin.
1: Are you kidding? And I was ripping him yeah, off yeah, yeah, yeah. relentlessly for about yeah, 10 years.
0: Yeah, yeah. and then And then you sort of grow into your own. Yeah. Your own style. No matter how
1: much you try to copy other people's work, eventually your own stuff is just gonna is just gonna evolve. So it's the thing I always say to aspiring artists is copy the hell out of people that you admire, and you know you don't have to worry about that after a while because you will emerge whether you want it to or not. Right. Right. Okay.
0: So you're most known for. King, and we, we can go back to the breaking in sure. uh, question through this question, I think. Right now, uh, I guess April was like the 50th anniversary of his assassination, and HBO Sorry. put out uh, this documentary, I think it's called King in the Wilderness. Yeah,
1: I've, I've got it on my queue, I've not seen it yet. and But it really reminds
0: me of the opening pages of King, when you have people that knew him, like right. talking about him, sort of in a talking head style. Oh, interesting And you seem to have pioneered the sort of warts and all portrayal like your work was one of the first that i read that talked about uh martin luther king as if he wasn't a savior as if he was an actual human being and now documentaries like this are starting to Hmm. do that and there's a lot of press around you know he he was a womanizer he wasn't all saintly no how does it feel to know that like something that you Wanted to do and showing this real person is now sort of coming back around a number of years later
1: Honestly, I didn't realize that was the case until you mentioned it like a second ago. So I don't know I have to take a second to process that I mean, I wasn't attempting to topple the myth nor was I attempting to Be any kind of a trailblazer or whatever the hell That's what came up in the research that I came across mm-hmm. and my philosophy has always been King is absolutely a, a um, an inspirational figure, but For me to be inspired by somebody, I need to know that they're not too far dissimilar to myself. You know, what I mean by that is I I find it hard to be inspired by somebody who never makes a mistake, who is saintly in every way. It's more inspiring to me to know that somebody can start off on the same kind of base level that the rest of us are on and rise above and achieve. So to me, it wasn't, again, it wasn't about toppling the myth, it was trying to show people, here's the full breadth of this human being and look what they're able to achieve despite it. Right. You know, right. They can, you can, fool.
0: What attracted you to Martin Luther King specifically when you could have done a biography of anyone?
1: Um, paycheck. It was, uh paycheck. It was an assignment. <laughs> <laughs> Getting into the breaking in thing. Um, when I first started, I started to get into this field when I was 14 years old. There used to be a publisher in Toronto called Vortex Comics. And they were, uh, they were. I think the original offices were on Spadina back in like the early to mid eighties. And uh, I went down there with a portfolio. I was like stinky and uncombed here and disheveled and my work was shitty. And when I walked there, I had a lot of confidence though. So I walked in there and I was like, here's my stuff. And they showed me the door. And then about uh, two years later, I tried the same thing. But this time, I guess I'd improved a little bit. I'd probably taken a bath and they they let me through the doors. And, uh, and that started an association with Vortex Comics. So that's where I started to become a quote unquote professional. Um, I got good, I got better, and then finally I got good enough that I started to show my stuff around to publishers in the States and in Europe and whatnot. And uh, finally, after a lot of rejection, Fantagraphics Books said to me, you know, we, I can see something in here, would you like to do some work for us? But it wasn't actually Fantagraphics proper, it was their offshoot Eros Comics, which was their pornography offshoot, which arose after the success of Howard Chaykin's Black Kiss around 1988, 1989. They realized, oh my God, sex comics, we can like, make some money here, because they were going into the shitter, they were about to go out of business, and this kind of, this like added the, gave them a financial boost. And uh, so I kind of came in on that wave, on my first conversation with Gary Groth, who was, you know, I think he was working under a pseudonym for his, for his Eros work. He said, look, I, I want to do a series of historical comic books. The first one I want to do is uh, I want to start off with Martin Luther King. Interested? Kid me is like, my, I'm finally getting somebody to pay attention to me, offer me some cash to do some work, and he's offering me two books, like one of my own creation and something else that he wants to do. I'm totally in. I had never really been that interested in Martin Luther King before that. I'd seen him, you know, I'd seen him around. I'd seen like documentaries about him, and he'd been a figure that I was aware of, but I had never had the inspiration or the interest to delve into his life story in any great detail. So I was kind of excited to do it. Um, One of the things I like about doing this kind of work is it affords you an opportunity to do a bit of research, you know, and learn about stuff that you don't really know that much about. I didn't know that much about the civil rights movement and this seemed like a pretty good opportunity to learn about it. Did you feel
0: kind of like a journalist or a comic journalist in in your research and your interviewing? Yeah.
1: As a matter of fact, I practiced journalism for about three years, two, three years at the Toronto Star. And I think the itch to become a journalist started when I was working on King because it was very exciting. Usually as a writer, you're creating something, when you're creating something, you're taking inspiration from various different sources and you're using it to kind of shape a narrative of your own design. But this, it's exciting to take facts and then let the fact shape the story. So I I just dove in, I went crazy, like just learning as much as I can from as many different sources as I could, took as much of a journalistic approach as I could. And then, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a dramatist, I'm going to take some dramatic license, of course. But it was always dictated by, by the facts. So yeah. Yeah, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do that.
0: That's awesome. So then
1: after King, did you go right into Scream Queen? Oh, God, no. Scream Queen was, well, actually, let me rethink that. You know what? You're right. Okay. Because the reason I was sort of hesitant to agree with you there is just because after the first volume of King, King was originally three volumes. After the first volume, I got another job. Which paid me more money, and being a money grubbing whore, I decided to go for it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, and this was uh, doing a job for uh, Milestone. Uh, there used to be a, a comic, a multicultural comic book publisher in the '90s called Milestone.
0: Yeah, they were they were revolutionary for they their were bringing revolution. black African American comic creators.
1: Just uh, diverse creators of all kinds, mm-hmm. people of color, women. It was a good place to be back in the early '90s, and they were distributed by DC, and it was it was a good time. And uh, I did a book for them called Wise Son. And then I did a whole bunch of stuff before cy- cycling back to King. And then as soon as I finished the third volume of King was finally finished, Scream Queen was in fact the first job that I did, yeah.
0: Awesome. And that's, that's a horror comic that sort of places... Uh, it's not the typical black experience that you see in horror. Like usually... The black person is unfortunately like the first person to die. They're
1: cannon fodder, right? Or Aaron,
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, so in this case, the the black the black character, the black protagonist, is is a, is a woman, and she is the killer, but she's very empowered, and she's very like judge, jury, and executioner uh, for people that. Are bad, kind of like a vigilante. So, can you spiritual
1: talk, vigilante? Yeah, spiritual sure.
0: vigilante. So, can you talk a little bit about uh, what you wanted to do with that and flipping the script of the traditional? Uh, black experience in in horror?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it wasn't really that thought out. It was simply, you know, I had a story that I wanted to tell and I had a protagonist and that was kind of it. And I sort of thought I'd let the layers sort of sort themselves out as I went. Um, I, what I'm saying is it wasn't meant to be kind of a comment about, you know, black people in horror. It was just that's sort of where it landed. Right. You know, in by retrospect. Default. Yeah, in retrospect, oh. definitely. But I mean, usually in, in horror films or in horror fiction in general, You'll get two tropes. You'll get uh, you'll get the black person as cannon fodder. You know that black person is always the first one to die, man, and that comes from somewhere. And the second trope is, uh, in my experience, is the magical Negro. You know, he'll come in and he'll be he'll be like John Coffey in The Green Mile. He'll be the one to come in and save the day at the end, at the expense of his own life, to to help out the white characters, generally speaking. I wasn't really interested in playing that game in this, in this book. I wanted to make the black character the front and center. But again, it wasn't an agenda, it's just this was the character that was in my head and this was kind of the story that I wanted to tell. I guess I was, in a sense, uh, practicing a little bit of cultural appropriation on this one because it's the story of a Banshee, which is obviously a historical uh, uh, Scottish, is it Scottish? Irish? I think it's Irish, uh, you know, an Irish character from Irish folklore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I was sort of reappropriating her for my, for my needs
0: that's awesome that's really cool so then and it it's sort of in two volumes like there's a there's sort of an abbreviated version and then an expanded version yes. called scream queen sand and fury Sand and
1: fury which is the darkest thing i've ever written or drawn is a dark story
0: well we'll talk about that talk about like going into those dark emotions and trying to tap into them in
1: order to to do this Well, the first Scream Queen, I was doing a book called, uh, with my ex-collaborator, Wilfred Santiago, called Pop Life. And it was just sort of a collection of ephemera we were working on. And in it, I was working on Scream Queen originally. And it was just gonna be it's kind of an irritating conceit as I look back on it, but at the time, I thought it was interesting to just do one page of a story with every issue. And we had projected Pop Life to go like 30 issues, so I was gonna do one page per issue And then wrap it up when pop life wrapped up but uh pop life got cancelled after like five issues because we just couldn't find our groove with that comic book and it it wasn't working anyway so when the time finally came uh when i finally finished king i needed a palate cleanser big time it had been such a heavy dark piece of work that book and and so doom-laden in the end you know knowing that this this man was about to get murdered um, that I just needed a palate cleanser. So I choose a horror story that makes no sense. But um, that's what I did. It was only supposed to be a short story. But when I finished it, I was in Barcelona. And uh, I was talking to some, uh, a publisher I was working with about it. And I said to them, you know, I've been thinking like th- I could do something more with this. If, you were in- if I did that, would you be interested in publishing it? And they said, yeah, which didn't wind up happening, actually. So I was sitting at home one day, and I, I was just thinking about it. And I just started writing. And I didn't really have much of a plan, but I just thought, I have an idea, let me just explore it. And it's the only time, usually I plan out my stories very meticulously, but this time I just started writing, and a week later I had a script. I didn't know where I was going when I first started, but by a week later the thing was finished, and I don't know what was going on with me. I guess I just had some kind of, uh, some anger or some something was going on that I needed to exercise in that moment, and it came out in those pages. So, yeah, so that's how it kind of got expanded from that initial very slim, square volume to the beefier thing that we have today.
0: That's awesome. And let's talk about the release that's sort of debuting at TCAF, Godhead. Godhead. I read this, and it's a book that kind of drops you in the middle of the story. There's not a lot of exposition in the beginning. You sort of have to figure out things as you go along but it mixes sort of religion and science and all sorts of different things. In the
1: business, culture, the exactly. corporate culture.
0: Absolutely. So what made you want to write a story that uh, was about people getting the opportunity to talk to God? Did you want to talk to God at that time?
1: Uh, not particularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think God would have much to say to me either, to be honest. So let's see. Well, my grandparents, my grandmothers, were both, and who I think only met one time, but they were virtually the same woman and that they were just obsessed with the Lord. And uh, every time I was was around them, it was always, you know, you're a sinner, you need to repent and find Jesus and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, granny, you got this. So it's always kind of been in my head, but I was never able to kind of, I, I believe there is something beyond us out there somewhere, but I have a hard time putting the label God onto him, her, or it. And uh, so, uh, you know, I think all of us are spiritual to some degree, whether we want to admit it or not. And uh, certainly it's something I've kind of had in my life that I've fought against for many years or and tried to embrace over the years as well. Anyway, let's long preamble. So around uh, 2000, well, just around the time that the towers fell, I was a magazine illustrator at that point. And uh, I was also... I was doing a bunch of stuff. And as a magazine illustrator, I really wanted to get into the corporate world, to get into the business illustration, because there's a lot of money to be made in that. At the same time, I realized I had not written or drawn an original story in a long time. This was like, again, around 2000, 2001. And uh, I wanted to create something. And I'd always loved crime, science fiction and whatnot. And I thought, oh, maybe I should try my hand at doing a science fiction story. And uh, so yeah, at the time, I was thinking about doing, I was doing the corporate portfolio I was doing another thing where I was trying to come up with a crime story called Morris Minor. It's going to be like a 1970s New York City set crime thriller. At a certain point as I was working on both of those projects, they started to just merge in my mind. I'm not sure exactly how, but eventually I was thinking of them as the same thing. So I decided to drop the idea of doing the corporate portfolio. I dropped doing the crime story and it occurred to me to try science fiction. So I thought, let me do that. So um, at the time the towers had just dropped and it was incredibly martial atmosphere. You know, we're about to go you know, North America, the States about to go off to Af- Afghanistan and then later to Iraq and same thing in Canada. And there's something going on there. And there was a kind of paranoia that I had not felt, honestly, since uh, I was a teenager during the cold war. So this story started to emerge. And I had this idea about having a bunch of futuristic, like black Panthers, like taking down a corporation or something. I didn't know exactly what it was. And I was in the shower one day, scrubbing off my disgusting body, and there was uh, the idea just popped into my head—a machine to like talk to God. And I rejected the idea due to what I, you know, my experience with my grandparents and all that. But the idea wouldn't go away. Sometimes they're like worms, you know—they start to drill into your head. An idea, no matter how you try to pull them out, they won't—they won't do it. So I, I just—I kind of gave in at a certain point. And So then I thought, you know, we've got—we've got this corporate drone, basically that emerged out of the story, which is the CEO, which is like the lead character. And then we're juxtaposing who's like, lives in this corporate bubble. And then we've got the other character, which evolved out of the crime story aspect, um, Racer Calhoun, who's a former soldier and kind of messed up, you know, mentally, and a lot of PTSD and and a, a bit of a wanderlust. He's always had a nomadic spirit. And for the first time in his life, he's sort of settled down with a woman for the, you know, for a couple of years and it's looking good, but he's got a restlessness and an offer kind of drops on it comes in you know drops on his lap to go off on one more adventure and uh, so that's that's kind of how the thing started to sort of take root in my mind and yeah
0: you seem to have hit on stuff that we are we're struggling with like right now like the the relationship between you know capitalism and spirituality and 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 yeah. that sort of thing like you know religion gets sold to us all the time and yeah. packaged Absolutely. and there's a struggle between you know being s- spiritual and modest, but then also making money and mm-hmm. and you know how do you marry those two things? Is right. that something that you think a lot about?
1: absolutely. I mean, um you know, I was kind of examining business culture, not the minutiae of business culture, but sort of the spirit of business culture. You know the idea is that this corporation is trying to privatize religion, basically. You know, corporations have gone into, like, the Middle East and and Central America, and they've swooped in. It's, a, it's sort of mini-colonialism. They've sort of swooped in to places where there's not a lot of money and a, and a little bit of political power and offered a bit of cash and then rewritten the rules so that, you know, so that the local citizens don't have access to their own resources. This has happened in Bolivia. This has happened in many places around the world. So my idea was sort of like this corporation is trying to privatize people's spirituality to some degree, which is a little bit how I feel about, about organized religion. You've got the, you've got uh, the Vatican bank. I think it's got like $8 billion in it. You know, it's got like, you know, coming up on 2 billion people who, uh, who are members of the Catholic church. I mean, that's a business, man. They're like every new t- member that they bring in, it's they're bringing in more cash. So, yeah, there just seems to be sort of a natural dovetail between business and religion that I wanted to explore. Well, And
0: there's there's a mysterious secrecy around what happens at the Vatican Bank and who has money and interest there and yep. that sort of thing. So there's there might be a corruption aspect. Who knows? Maybe, Maybe
1: they've them. got their own machine to talk to the Lord.
0: Exactly, exactly. Well, I, I wanted to mention that Hoche uh, will be signing uh, between three and four at the Fantagraphics table. But uh, I wanted to open it up for questions for sort of the last half hour. Does anyone have a question?
1: You. Boom. Lay down, me brother.
0: Tell us more about your experience at Vortex. So you came back two years later. You were 16 years old. Yes, sir. Um, what were you doing for them? What was that like at 16? What kind of process or feedback were you getting?
1: Yeah, it was weird, man. It was like uh, It was like a mini comic book cult in that place. So...
0: Did you have your own ongoing
1: monthly? Or? Oh, God, no. So what happened was uh, they were looking... They were publishing a book called Mr. X at the time. It's sort of science fiction detective story, which I loved. I was crazy about that book. And, uh, and I knew they were local, so I thought it made sense for me to go and check them out. And uh, they were trying to bring in new talent. They were very much into fostering new talent at that point. And uh, I think I kind of fit the bill for whatever reason. But the thing about... The, <laughs> I'm hesitant to name names at this point, but uh, the publisher, let's just leave it at that, bit of a shady character. He had had some nefarious dealings with uh, some of his artists, like the Hernandez brothers were working for him at that point and were having a difficult time collecting the money. Pardon me? Seth was in in there there too. He also had some issues with Bill. And uh, you know, when you're 16, you're starting out, you don't care about that stuff. So uh, all I cared about was that this person was paying me a bit of attention and so I pitched them a a book and they were very enthusiastic about the book and they were like, you know, making a lot of promises and I was naive enough to believe what they were saying and to act on faith. So I went ahead and I wrote and I drew this uh, 25, 26 page first issue and I planned out five other issues for a series that I wanted to do. Again, acting on faith, I went and I completed all the work and I handed it in to Bill without a dime being paid to me, I might add. And he's like, he rejected it. You know, he, they were very encouraging at first. They were like, okay, we can." it's not exactly what we were looking for, but we can fix it this way, we can fix it that way. And then as the fixes came in, they just became less and less responsive. So after a while, I kind of realized that this was going nowhere. And more and more people were telling me that they were shady and not really to be trusted. So I kind of had to, we had to part company. So it's a little bit sad though, because it could have been. We, we, you know, it, there were things that we could have done that never came to fruition, unfortunately. Speaking
0: of Mr. X and and sort of vortex, I noticed a lot of similarity between the landscapes in Godhead and the cityscapes in Godhead and Mr. X, and I wonder sure. if that sort of unconsciously gestated the pages of Mr. X. In your oh no, it was
1: very conscious. Um, not, I mean, I wasn't specifically ripping off mr x no. as so much as i was ripping off a lot of science fiction right. because Metropolis. metropolis I, I specifically referenced the building in metropolis yeah. in the second issue and the second chapter in godhead um i just like the idea i mean I, i've lived in i've lived in the city of toronto for most of my life and when i wasn't living in the city of toronto i was living just outside the city so I, i'm an urban person all right i got concrete and asphalt in my blood and i've always like the idea of future cities for whatever reason. Um, just big, vast, bright, disgusting future cities just awesome to me. And uh, I, so I just wanted to tell a story that kind of was set in that environment and referenced the stuff. A lot of Godhead for me is kind of a playground. It's sort of a, a playground of reference. you know I get to like sort of comment and reference this a lot of the stuff that I grew up loving. You know, and that can sometimes be sort of a limited form of expression, but uh, I don't think the whole story is dependent on me just referring stuff. So I feel confident about it. But uh, yeah, man, I just wanted to do like my my metropolis. I wanted to do my radiant cities, a uh, city in Mr. X. I wanted to do my, you know, Los Angeles 20 whatever the fuck Blade Runner year <laughs> happens. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that was my that was, it, was, it was fun times.
0: That's awesome. Does anyone else have a question? There's got to be one more. Yes, sir. I'm curious, with starting your career doing adult comics, was there any kind of like stigma that went on there? My friends work in the adult industry, like in film, and even cameramen get kind of targeted as, this is what you do, now you don't get hired on other things. Was right. there anything like that
1: in the comic world? Nah, I don't give a shit. <laughs> nobody was paying attention. Sure. <laughs> yeah, nobody was paying attention, and even if they did, I don't give a shit. And the thing is, I think my work was strong enough that it, you know, it's, if I want to do a porno comic, that's what I'm going to do, and if I want to do a superhero comic or a science fiction comic, that's what I'm going to do. You know, if I want to shoot a porno movie, that's what I'm going to do. And so I don't care. Nobody's telling me what I can and cannot do, except for me.
0: Awesome. Anyone else?
1: What was your porno comic about? <laughs> it was about sex. It was about... Uh, how did I do reference did, for it? <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> uh, you can figure that one out on your own. Um, what was it about? Uh, it was called I Want to Be Your Dog, and it was about a... Morally corrupted young woman who uh, has had a god. You know, it's been a long time since I even thought about that book. Um, it's about moral corruption. Let's just leave it at that. You know, bad things happen. It's a crime story. There's drugs. There's sex. There's booze. There's all the good stuff. There's vice galore. Whatever. Do you get fans writing in? Yeah.
0: I love that issue. Where, uh, blah, blah, blah.
1: I got more fan letters for "I Want to Be Your Dog" than I've gotten for anything I've done in the last <laughs> like. 20 plus years. So. <laughs> I think that tells me I should be doing more sex comics is, is the lesson to be
0: learned from this. Godhead is something that is obviously going to continue. There's other yes. volumes in this series. How long do you think it's going to go? What are your future
1: plans? Well, this story wraps up with volume two, which is underway now. Um, hoping to hit the shelves this time next year. Um, after that, I've got other stuff that I in this world that I would like to do. I've got other stories that are sort of sketched out. But there's no there are no concrete plans. That having been said, um, you know what? I'm going to leave it at that for the time being because there's some stuff in the works. But uh, but yeah, for now, it's just this story. But I'm hoping that there's enough interest in it down the road that we can we can do some more stories for sure.
0: And if people want to follow you on social media and keep track of you and your career, where can they go?
1: Um, I'm on Instagram, and uh, I'm uh, you can find me, official host, HoJ Anderson, at Tumblr, on Tumblr, whatever. You can reach me uh, through email at hocheanderson at gmail.com. That's awesome. Well...
0: If there's no more questions, uh, I think we can we can wrap it
1: up. It feels like that's it. All yeah.
0: right. <laughs> Thanks you guys.
1: <laughs> this has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future,
0: friends. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit neversleepsnetwork.com. Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com is executive produced by Alex Ross. Audio editing by Joseph Yanni. Social media assistance by Jamie Warner and The Social Smiths. Announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward. Logo design and graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.